There is a difference between good advice and good news. There's a difference between good advice and good news. Everywhere you look in the world today, you find advice. You know, you would find advice on what kind of car you should get. You find advice on diets, you know, go on this diet, paleo diet, whatever. You find advice on workout routines, how to stay fit. Uh, You also find advice on, you know, regular household stuff. Uh, like the, you know, the magical art of tidying up or whatever. I don't know what it was. Mary Kondo, so you can you know, throw away anything that doesn't spark joy. Everyone is looking to give you advice, and so that way they could sell a book on their advice. You find advice everywhere. But what we find here at the very beginning of Mark chapter 1 is we read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have something called good news supposed to good advice. You see, good advice is something that you have to do. Here are some things that you ought to do. Whereas news is, this is what has happened. You know, we've been walking through the Old Testament, and Austin le- left off last night with, you know, 400 years of silence. Here's the nation of Israel failing God again and again and again. And here is God showing his grace to them again and again and again. And at the end, they still continue to fall short and you have no prophecy, no words. What does Israel need? A lot of people would have thought that what Israel needed was some good advice. Here's some better ways to do the sacrifices. Here's some religious rituals that you might need to participate in. But God doesn't give advice. He brings news. And that news is not about an event. That news is not about a a system. We read that that news is a person. It's not a program. It's a person. Our text this evening is going to be Mark chapter 1. Verses 1 through 13. Let's take a look and read it together. It reads, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. 
spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So reads the word of the living God. Who is Jesus Christ? He's obviously the most well-known figure of the Bible. In fact, if you were to make any list of the most well-known people in history, you would find Jesus certainly in the top 10, if not in the top five. In fact, most lists of the most influential people in history have him at the very least in the top three, if not number one. Books have been written about him. Songs have been written about him. Entire movements bear his name. And yet what you find is there is so much confusion today about who Jesus is. Some say Jesus was a great teacher. He was a prophet. He was a miracle worker. He was a scoundrel. He's a deceiver. He's a mythological figure. Jesus represents what the ideal man would be like. It's not very different than what was said about Jesus in his time. He was called a drunkard. Some thought he was Elijah. Clearly, others thought he was a good teacher. Others said he was filled with demons. Who is Jesus Christ? We've been looking at the great story of redemption. If we're, if we're looking at the great story of what God has been doing in this world, and if we're going to understand the story, we need to understand Christ. Who is this man from Nazareth who's had so much influence in our world, despite the fact that he came from such an insignificant place? What is the truth behind all these various accounts we have about him? Student, I want to... I want to be really upfront with you tonight. I want to ask you this question. Do you rightly understand Jesus? Do you have a correct view of Christ? Because that ultimately is the question that we go back to the first night. If you're responding right to God's story, you'll respond rightly to his son. We need to understand Jesus. And here we, we're looking at him in the Gospel of Mark. And what you'll immediately notice about the Gospel of Mark is the Gospel of Mark is a little bit different uh, from the rest of the Gospels. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, or sorry, in the Gospel of John, you have this long theological introduction that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God. If you go to the Gospel of Matthew, you start with a genealogy and then a birth story. If you go to the Gospel of Luke, you get the birth story followed later by a genealogy. Here, we don't get any genealogy. You know, there's no Christmas here. There's no wise men or chubby baby angels singing to the shepherds in the fields, anything like that. I don't know if there were chubby baby angels, but you, you, don't, you don't have that going on. It just begins with the good news of Jesus Christ. Even that little dialogue about Satan and Jesus facing him in the wilderness is, is really short. What do we learn? What what do we do with this text? Why is it so brief? Why does Mark leave out all this content? Let me tell you why. Mark, as an author, has an aim with this text. That Mark chapter 1, verse 13, serves as a sort of trailer. You guys like trailers, right? You know what I'm not talking about? Like, you know, trailers that you put behind a car and, you know, tow around. Talking about movie trailers, previews, uh, a short synopsis, a two, two and a half minute 
video that tells you about the movie coming out. It starts with like, in a world, or you know, deep, uh, deep music, dramatic music. Well, this passage serves as a sort of preview. In other words, the rest of the Gospel of Mark, what you find is everyone trying to figure out who Jesus is. But in these first 13 verses, for us as the reader, we get to learn who Jesus is. We learn at the very beginning of this gospel who Jesus Christ is. My prayer that tonight as we look at this, that you would be blown away by the glory of Christ. That my prayer as a praying earlier, that my weak words and my weak descriptions would help you to see the greatest person in all the universe for all his brilliance. He is, as most people know, he was on the cross a bloody savior. But what you'll see in this text is he is a beautiful and glorious savior. Who is Jesus Christ? Three points tonight. You're taking notes. Three points. Who is Jesus? Number one is this, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Now, Many people maybe don't understand this. They always throw Jesus Christ together. But the word Christ is a title. It was not Jesus' last name. He wasn't born to Mary and Joseph Christ. You understand that? Like if you were to go to Jesus' yearbook, I don't think they had it. But if you did, you wouldn't go to the seas, look up Christ, and then find a, a picture of Jesus there. That wasn't his last name, but it's a title. In order to understand this title... We'd actually need to, to jump back into the Old Testament a little bit. Uh, and I want you to turn, if you would, for a moment to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Cham- Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 7. Uh, last night, as Austin was talking, he talked about God called a man from a pagan nation and told him that he was going to start a nation through that man. What was the name of that man? Everyone. Abraham. God called a man named Abraham, and he told Abraham that he was going to have a people, they were going to have a land, and they were going to be a nation to bless all the nations. So God's plan from the fall in the garden has been to to rescue all the nations through one nation. And as we saw last night, that nation was Israel. Uh, The nation of Israel continued to fail again and again and again. And God, at the same time, kept making promises to them. Promises that he would fulfill. Promise them that they will, in fact, inherit the land. A promise that the nation will endure forever. And yet here in 2 Samuel, he makes another promise. He makes a promise to a man named David, who was king over Israel. Take a look at verse 12, 2 Samuel verse 12. David wanted to build a house for God. But God responds, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There he's talking about David's son, Solomon. He will have a kingdom, he will have a, a, be the king of a th- nation that will exist forever. Verse 14, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16, 
in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, God's promise is, David, not only will you have a son who is king, but your line will never die out. That through your line, there will be an eternal kingdom. Uh, There will be a kingdom that never departs, uh, that never ends. Let's go one more spot and we go back to Mark. Go to Psalm 132. Psalm 132, as, as they begin to, uh, as Israel heard this and knew this promise, they begin to think, okay, there's this eternal kingdom. Uh, there's this hope that David's throne would exist forever. And there begin to be these promises, like in Micah 5, that there will be a ruler that comes forth from Bethlehem and that his goings will be from long ago. Psalm 132, I want to show you a one word in Psalm 132. There was this anticipation of this kingdom. It will exist forever. Psalm 132, verse 13 says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. This promise that God has made for Jerusalem, they will exist forever. There, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. This anointed one, this one set apart, that will be king. Hebrew word for anointed, Mashiach. You want to translate that into Greek? Christos or Christ. When Mark calls Jesus the Christ, that's not just his last name. What he's saying is Israel... There has been a king that you have been waiting for. There is a king who is coming, who will rule forever. That God's plan has been to have an eternal kingdom and there will be a king who sits on that throne and that king is Jesus Christ. That in the plan of God, as the story goes on, there becomes this need for a king, but all of the kings fail Israel until we get to God's last king his final king. You can head back to Mark there, but what we find over and over again are these prophecies that this king will come. And what we find is that Jesus is that king. That passage there in uh, that Old Testament prophecy that you find in Mark chapter one, where Mark is quoting Isaiah, you'll see it in your text. It's a different font or it's, it's indented to the left. What you find is that's a quote from Isaiah, a, a prophecy about the king who is coming. And what Mark is trying to say is, this is the king that has been told of long ago. You see, Jesus wasn't just a new idea. Jesus wasn't just something that God said, well, man, Israel's really messing it up. Man is lost in their sin. I guess we'll try Jesus. No, but this has been God's plan, that he would have a king who would rule on this earth, much in the way that Adam was supposed to rule, but I'm going to find a better king, King Jesus. The passage there of John the Baptist, that sounds good to us, and at the same time, it's kind of weird fashion statements that John Baptist has going on there with, you know, camel hair robe and 
strange diet, eating bugs, you know, the kind of thing you don't usually eat unless you're trying to earn 20,000 points for your team at camp or something like that. But why is that passage there? Well, it was prophesied about in Malachi that when the Christ, the king, would come, he would have a forerunner, a forerunner who was a prophet, much like Elijah. All of what's happening here in Mark 1 is a continuation of the Old Testament to say that Jesus is that king, that Jesus is the king who is to come. But in God's plan to rescue the world, it's not just that he's going to be king over Israel. It's a global plan. Uh, Listen, if you would, to Isaiah 49. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son. Uh, He says to him, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Saying it's too small. It's not enough that I just make you a king over Israel. He goes on, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is good news for all nations. That one day Jesus Christ will rule this planet. That Jesus Christ is God's king. It is God's plan to have him exalted and reign and that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. That's how Mark starts the gospel. That Jesus is the Christ. You notice something, by the way, in this text? If, if this is a continuation of the Old Testament, you know what this tells us? Is that God is active in salvation. But what you find is that man is awfully and terribly lost in the Old Testament. And that the good news of the gospel doesn't start with man coming up with a scheme. It's God initiating reconciliation. And he begins by bringing his king into the world. Now, I want you to think about Jesus as king for a second. Because when we have pictures of kings, we think of tyrants. You know, like our country literally started because we like didn't want a king, right? You know, 4th of July, you, you, your parents will talk about it later. Uh, but you, you get what I'm saying? Like that, that we, we don't like kings. We cringe. We think power is scary. We kind of want to have our own authority. But I want to tell you, this is good news. Because as you read the gospels, what you find is that Jesus is a good king. I mean, think about our kings today. When we think of royalty, we think, uh, you know, if I was king, I would never have to go to the grocery store again. I would just be like, butler, go get my fruit snacks. I don't know, I'm just, you know, accommodating you there. Whatever snacks you want, go get me in and out. Go get whatever I want. Send someone to go get your food. You don't have to get anything. Think if you're a king, you're like, you think I'm taking tests? No way, I'm gonna have the butler take my tests for me. I'm getting straight A's where I'm firing my butler and, you know, getting someone else to do something. When we think of king, we think abusing power. But Jesus is a good king. Jesus shows compassion on those in need. A man in Mark chapter one with leprosy will come up to him and Jesus will feel sad with him and heal him. Crowds will interrupt him, and yet he will feel compassion on the crowds. He he wants to feed 5,000 people. Instead of sending them away, he feeds them himself. He is a compassionate and good king. Kings today, royalty today, power today means that you serve them. You know what Jesus said? He said, I did not come to be served, but rather to serve and give my life 
a ransom. Student, you want a king like this. This is the kind of king that you want. Uh, whether or not you, know, you live in Britain or somewhere with uh, you know, actual monarchy or you live in the United States, everybody has a king. Everybody has something ruling your life. For some of you, it's lust that is your king. It is popularity that is your king. It is how others view you that rules your life. It is your sport that is your life. And none of the kings that you find in this world serve you. You serve them. You change your looks for them. You cut out time to make more money for that king. But Jesus is a king that serves us. You see, that's the kind of king we need. What you need is a benevolent dictator. You need someone that has all authority and yet that is impeccable in their character. At Jesus' trial, they can't even make something up to accuse him of. That's the kind of king you want. Is that the kind of king you have? Because that's the kind of king that Jesus is. He is a king and he is a good king. Who is Jesus? Number one, he is the Christ. He is God's appointed king and he could be your king. Number two, Jesus is the son. Jesus is the son. Verse one, again, the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Besides Christ, this is the second title that we see attributed to Jesus in this passage. We see it here in verse one. We see it again affirmed in verse 11. Uh, God speaking to Jesus says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And while Christ or Messiah may be unfamiliar to some of us, we all know about Jesus being called the Son. We all know that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. I mean, John 3, 16, the most popular verse, what God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. People know that Jesus claims to be the Son. But what does that mean that Jesus is the Son? Well, is it a literal? Is it an adoption thing? Well, it's not a, a procreated Son. It's not that God made Jesus. It's not that God is, or that Jesus is God's offspring. Uh, There are religions who believe that, and there is no biblical backing for that. That is an offense to Jesus to say that he is a created being. Uh, Others would say that Jesus was good, and at this point, he became the son. Uh, That's not true. He's he's always been God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Psalm 2, there is this prophecy, this speaking of the anointed God's son, But what the Son of God is, is a reference, as many of you know, to Jesus' deity. That Jesus is God. That he has a divine nature. That he's much more than just an exalted man. But he is the God of the universe. Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 both attest that everything we see was, that we see was made through Jesus that he has existed from eternity past, that he has no beginning, that he is not just a good man or a great prophet. He is not just a a superhero pulling off cool tricks. He is God the Son. He is the second person of the Trinity. He he goes on to say this, that I and the Father are one. In fact, these these prophecies that are being made here in verses 2 and 3 Uh, where it talks about make way his uh, path, where it says, behold, I send my messenger before your face. 
Do you realize that behold, I send my messenger before your face comes from the book of Malachi? It's a prophecy. But in the book of Malachi, it's referring to God, Yahweh. And Mark here, though, uses it in reference to Jesus. In other words, he's saying that God, the God, the one and only God, Jesus is that God. Jesus is the very God of the universe. That the way that God came to save us, the way that he came to rescue us, was that he came and personally intervened. He came in, as John 1 says, tabernacled with us, dwelt among us. This is amazing. I mean, you need to think about that. Some of you have been into church way too many times and have, you know, taken way too many Awana tests and gotten way too many badges to forget that this is an amazing fact. This is God coming to live with sinful man. This is way bigger and way better than the other gods. This is way bigger and better than any other god. So him being the son is a reference to the fact that he is divine. But it's more than that. Tune in here. If you think that him being the son of God is just a statement about his deity, then your view of Jesus is a little too small. He is God the son. But this is talking about him being the Son of God. Take a look for one second at Luke chapter 3. Go to Luke chapter 3. Original audience would have understood Mark's statement. We need a little help from Luke. Luke chapter 3, the very end of the chapter, what you find is a genealogy. We won't take all the time to do it, but if you were to study the Old Testament, you would find that there are other times where people are referred to as the Son of God. You see this genealogy with all these names, but look at verse 38, the last verse. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam was called a son of God. Israel is called a son of God. Moses tells Pharaoh, God said, let my son go. How? Adam is a son of God. What does that mean? Well, remember what we talked about on Friday night. What was Adam supposed to be? He was created in the image of God, to be an image bearer of God, to represent God in his to be in his likeness. And it's true, right? As, you know, as kids with parents, isn't there a sense where you are, you know, the spitting image of your parents? I think it's always so funny that as Jude gets older, I'm both terrified and excited about the fact that there's so many things he does that are exactly like me. A little bit excited, mostly terrifying uh, that someone's exactly mimicking you. Like love for baseball, same hand gestures when somebody scores. He opens the trash can, drops it in, closes the lid, walks away, goes boom, and keeps going. I'm just like, this is terrifying right here, the the mini me, right? They they reflect, there's ways that they're like you. And in the same way, Adam was supposed to be like God. And as we already talked about though, he wasn't. 
He did a terrible job of representing God. And the nation of Israel did a terrible job of representing God. And all the kings did a terrible job of representing God. But when you look at Jesus, what you find is a perfect image of God. God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Why does the father love the son? Because it's his son and he's gushy and mushy. No, but because Jesus perfectly represents him. None of us have ever seen God. But if you want to know what the God of the universe is like, you have a perfect picture of him in Jesus Christ. That he is, it says in Colossians 1, the image of the invisible God. We get this picture sometimes that the God of the Old Testament is kind of angry and Jesus is like, it's okay, I'll take care of everything. We'll chill. That's not the case. One theologian says it like this. There is no God in heaven who is not exactly like Jesus Christ. That when you look at Jesus, you see what God is like. In fact, when when Philip says to him in John 14, show us the Father, Jesus can actually say, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now again, think about what this says about the greatness of God and about the greatness of Christ. That no one else can make such a statement. No one else has done what image bearers are supposed to do, but Jesus has. But also, when you read your New Testament, friend, it should increase your love and affections for God. When you see the creative power of Jesus, you can know that's exactly what the Father is like. When you see the authority of Jesus, you know that is exactly what the Father is like. When you see the compassion and the care and the kindness of Jesus, that is exactly what the Father is like. So much so that Paul will say in Corinthians that we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know, you want to know what God is like? You know, there, there's a way you can go, I guess, through this world, making up your own idea of who God is, having your own gods, maybe be a spiritual God or a fake God, or maybe just putting yourself as God. But all those gods are false gods. All those are idols. Uh, to worship those gods is, is stupid and will ultimately doom you for eternity. But if you want to know what God is like, we do look at his word. And we look at the word incarnate. We see God and we see Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. That is, he is the king who will reign forever. And he is the son of God who is the perfect image of the father. Number three, who is Jesus? This has been good news And there's more good news to come. Third point, you could word it like this. Jesus is our champion. Jesus is our champion. Now, when I say champion, I don't mean it in the way that we would use the word like Super Bowl champion, you know, region champion, you know, sports champion. I I don't mean it like that. But what I mean is, In the sense of representative, 
Dictionary definition of the word champion, one of the definitions is, is a representative, someone who stands for another, a person who fights for or defends any person or cause. You know, your, your school, you, you go to the football game on Friday night. Uh, they're playing the football game, but they represent you. Uh, this is similar to the way that uh, David and Goliath fought. They fought individually, and they fought as representatives of both their nations. If you're a Chronicles of Narnia person, uh, Prince Caspian, Book 2, uh, Peter versus King Miraz, that is a, that kind of battle. One fighter for each side representing the whole side. What we find is that Jesus goes through life as a champion, as an advocate, as a representative for sinners. And I'm getting that from verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13, that the Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. We have this showdown with Satan. You got to remember back to the story again. Can't see this just as an isolated event. This is the enemy of old. The one who we saw in Eden. And if you read through the gospel of Mark, and if you just look at the news today, what you find is that the world is so un-Eden-like. If you were just to read through the gospel of Mark itself, you would find a man with an unclean spirit, a woman with a fever, a leper who is unclean, a paralyzed man, a man with a withered hand, a man who has a legion of demons, a synagogue official whose daughter is dying and then dies, a woman who's been bleeding as long as that little girl had been alive. You find a a father whose son is being afflicted by a demon, a demon that keeps trying to burn him or to drown him. We see that as a result of the fall, as a result of man's sin and the serpent's craftiness, that this whole world has fallen apart. The whole system is warped. In fact, so much so that Ephesians 2 called Satan the prince of the power of the air. He's called the ruler of this world. First John says the whole world is in the hands of the evil one. And from Genesis 3 all the way to Mark 1, it seems like the serpent is winning. Right? Because not only is the world falling apart, but man is so wickedly corrupt. I mean, Israel sees God rescue them from Egypt. They see God split the Red Sea. They see Mount Sinai. Moses goes up for 40 days. I'll be right back. What do they do? They make another God while he's gone. A cow God. The worst God you can make. Over and over again, they fail, and it seems that the serpent has won. He hates God, takes out his wrath on the children of God, and the corrupt nature of this world is the evidence of his work. Do you notice something about this passage? It's incredibly brief compared to the other times this, this account happens. How many of you are familiar with the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? You've heard this story before. Okay, he's, he's there for 40 days, and there's three temptations. So you, Satan tempts him to turn these rocks into bread. Satan tempts him to, you know, jump off the building and have angels catch you. Uh, Jesus, or Satan says, bow down to me. There's these three temptations. Uh, Jesus resists him, always using truth, always quoting Deuteronomy, and then Satan departs. It's a, it's a long episode. It takes up a lot of verses in your other, in your other uh, books. 
So why is this one so short? Why does Mark only use two verses? It's such a small account. There's not a lot of detail here. Mark's account has one purpose. Again, these first 13 verses, think of them as a trailer. Think of them like a prologue. Think of them as a preview. Mark 1, 12 and 13 is a warning shot. It's saying that the curse is going to be undone. Spoiler alert, there's 15 chapters left, but I'm going to tell you now how this is going to end. Jesus is going to win. Jesus is going to conquer. You see, there was a time when Satan went into the garden with the first Adam. He was in a lush garden with animals that submitted to Adam and were good animals. And Satan won. And yet here we find him not in the garden, but in a wilderness with wild animals. He comes to the second Adam. But he will not defeat Jesus. Jesus will win. This is good news for us, friends, because the first Adam failed. The first representative of the human race failed. And because of that, the whole human race has been plunged into sin, where you have decades and centuries and millennia of rebellion, of false gods and false worship and pride and immorality and greed and people who hate God and people who say they love God but don't really actually obey him. I mean, some of you, you can't even go to camp. And even though you know the verses, even this week, you'd be ashamed to admit certain things that happened to your small group leaders. Because sin still follow us, and it all is from the first Adam, the first representative. But here, this Adam will not fail. And he is a greater representative. He is going to undo the curse. He's going to save sinners from the penalty of sin, and he's going to undo the power of sin. This is who Jesus is. He will undo the curse, and he will proclaim victory to those in bondage to their sin. And he will not do it with an army. He will not do it with a violent coup. He will not do it with political power. But he will crush the head of the serpent through the cross, that Jesus is going to have his hands and his feet nailed to a piece of wood. He's going to be mocked and spit on. Worse than that, it says that all went dark. And for three hours, the king, the son of God, was crushed by the wrath of God so that he could be our substitute, so that he could be our representative, so that you, student, could be forgiven of your sin, so that you wouldn't have awful kings, but you could have a good king, so that you wouldn't have 
terrible imaginations of who God is, but you could follow the one who truly shows who God is so that you don't have to be your own representative, your own champion, but you can have an advocate before God that says, this one's with me. He's in. He's part of the kingdom. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel, that he came to be our representative, that his life is accredited to us, that that when God looks at us, if we're his follower, it's as if we lived his life, that he came to be our representative in his death, that three days later, he rose from the dead to show that he could actually do all that he promised. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the story of scripture, the story that we've been going through, that God does not save sinners once man cleans themselves up, that man needs somebody to clean them from the outside and to clean their inside. And Jesus is that one. This is the greater Passover lamb. Friends, we are lost in our sin, but the champion has arrived. Student, you need an advocate. You need a king like this. You need someone to plead your case and to stand in your place before a holy God. And Jesus is that person. This is a great story. This comes from the great God who planned it. And this is good news, not advice good news. Good news, that is, if you respond rightly. Jesus is a king. What does the king say? Verse 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. What is this gospel? What is the good news that Jesus is proclaiming? Here it is. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Here's the message of Jesus. The kingdom has come. I am God's king. Repent and believe the good news. That is turn from your old ways. Turn from following your sin. Turn from your rebellion to God. And believe on, put your trust in the kingship of Jesus. See, this is not a call just to believe in the existence of Jesus or in the niceness of Jesus or to become a fan of Jesus. This is to say, put all your hope, all of your life into the kingship of Jesus Christ. To follow him in every single way to recognize that he is the king that I need to be saved, that I have no hope beside him, and to turn and to throw yourself upon the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Student, what will you do with the message of the king? What will you do with the message of the king? Some of you have come to camp this week and you've believed the good news, you've recognized your sin, your own spiritual bankruptcy, and you've trusted in King Jesus, trusting that he alone could be a representative, following after him. And yet lately you haven't been living like it. 
You've been content maybe with just a, a Sunday, Wednesday Christianity. Soon if that's you, praise God that he brought you here. And in his grace, he's reminding you that Jesus is your king and that you need to follow the kingship of Jesus. But some of you, you need to turn to Christ. You need to come to this king. That he is not your king. That he is your enemy. I was talking about Jesus coming back with a vengeance. Some of you, your rebellion has looked like outright just denying Christ. Saying, I don't want anything to do with him. Uh, that I just want to live my life in my own way and no one tells me what to do. For others, you've used a pseudo love for Jesus as a veil to keep you from actually following after him. You may have actually tricked some people, small group leaders, friends, parents, but the king knows who's following him. And he's just as offended if you follow him half-heartedly, really keeping you as the king. Some of you need to turn to Christ. And you know what the good news is? Is Mark 1, 14 and 15, repent and believe in the good news? That's not a harsh warning. That's an invitation. That the king of the universe, the one who stooped down into the sinful world, the one who should burn us to a cinder because of our sin, invites you. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. He says in John 6 that the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. He tells the rich young ruler, I am aware of your sin and I see it better than you do, but follow me. The king calls you to come to him. And what does he promise? He promises that all your sin would be washed away. He promises that he would be your advocate before the Father. He promises that you will get to heaven, not because you got saved and then you worked your way there, but because he will save you and he will keep you and bring you into his kingdom. This is the king. This is the good king. Student, turn to Christ and he will be your king. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus and for how great he is. We cannot fully express the the wonder and the mystery of the glory of Christ. That he is so far above our comprehension and we cannot put into words all of his glory. We praise you for your son. We praise you, God, that you have chosen a righteous king. We praise you that when we see Jesus, we see you. We praise you that Jesus came to save sinners. God, I pray that you would help us to follow you as king. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.